Welcome to episode 52 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Darren Mott. And in this episode, we talk more with folks at the 2021 National Cybersecurity Summit live from Huntsville. Okay, so maybe this won't be exactly be live, but uh, as you know, the last couple episodes, I've been playing interviews from uh, when I was at the National Cyber Summit in Huntsville. So these are going to be two more of those interviews. It's going to be Darren House from a company called Rocket Tech and Edward Lopez from a company named Big Glass. I hope you enjoy it. All right, so I'm joined now by Edward Lopez from Big Glass, Big Glass Incorporated LLC. What's the Big Glass? Big Glass, what we do is we're a zero trust platform. Oh. We uh, basically broker connectivity from users, endpoints, wherever they may be, to their cloud apps, to their internal apps, and to the web in general. You know, uh, and brokering means providing um, you know contextual access control and the ability to inspect traffic with our DLP engine. Well, I love that you said it's zero trust. I'm going to circle back around to that because that is a great, that is obviously the buzzword topic in cybersecurity today. So I want to talk a little bit more about that. Um, But let's step back to your, just how you got into cyber, what's your cybersecurity career arc? Okay, fair enough. Uh, Actually, I've been around the block since, uh, you know, since I joined uh, Cisco in the mid-90s. I was one of the uh, early SEs that were specializing in security back when it was just a PIX firewall and a NetRanger, you know, uh, uh, IDS and stuff like that. Uh, I've been uh, through NetScreen, got got acquired by Juniper, did some in the network access control space with Concentry Networks, and then uh, spent 10 years at Fortinet. I was actually uh, vice president in technical sales, and I was uh, also a product manage- manager for, um, for carrier solutions over there. Cool. So what's your earliest cybersecurity memory? So I can... So- I say this when I do presentation. I talk about my earliest cyber memory in the sense that my, my first computer I ever dealt with was in 1977. My mother was a programmer at a bank, and there's a big old mainframe computer. that had a little screen that I could play games on. So what's your first cyber or cybersecurity memory? Okay, first cybersecurity memory was back in the 80s when I was in the Navy. Uh, it was interesting because uh, back then uh, PC compatibles were showing up, Zenith 248s, and they, these things didn't even have hard drives. You mm-hmm. know, we were all dealing with the five-and-a-quarter-inch floppies. And I actually had a uh, copy of the Norton Utilities version one. Oh, <laughs> you know, very nice. back when you can uh, you can undelete files by restoring the first letter. Right, know, right, right. That type of thing. So uh, it happened to be that there was a game being passed around, uh, you know, on, on a floppy. People were making copies of it, and I decided real quick just to run Norton Utilities, you know, in one floppy on this other floppy. And lo and behold, I found a deleted um, uh, action report from a ballistic missile submarine. No, that is not good. (laughs) No, I reported it up to subgroup six, got a commendation. Nice. So there you go. That was, uh, that would, I would have to say is my earliest cybersecurity thing. So how have, so from from the 80s to now, how have you seen cybersecurity change? Well, Obviously, in the 80s, there was no cybersecurity. didn't exist. No one thought much about it other than, hey, computers are cool. Let's work with them. Yeah. So where how have you seen it move from, from then to now? Well, one of the things I like to say, um, usually when people ask me about cybersecurity, I tell them, first thing, productivity doesn't require security, right? We can create productivity. We're really good at it. And we go through cycles of creating productivity, right? You can think about like when we went from wired to wireless, 
you know, WEP was terrible, you know, right. but it was productive. Yep. You know, when we went to uh, voice over IP instead of landline phones, it made us more productive. It was, it was not good from a security standpoint. And we keep going through these iterations. Cloud, uh, you know, moving to the cloud, you know, embracing the cloud is just another pot of productivity that's not necessarily secure. Right. And, uh, but we constantly trade for those. So security becomes important in order to maintain productivity, you know, obviously in an adverse environment. Unfortunately, I find that we are not um, very good. Uh, you know, pe- people are generally not good, very good at evaluating risk. Right. You know, a good example right now is um, I tell people that, uh, for example, uh, Accenture will tell you that if you're a small, medium business, let's say a 500-user business, uh, they will tell you that uh, a PII breach can cost you between $150,000 and $200,000. But the CIOs in that space think it's going to be 10000 In other right. words, there's, a, there's this crazy you know, gap in risk aversion. And it's true, right? I mean, let's be honest. If we were good at risk aversion, Las Vegas wouldn't exist, right? Or they don't think it would happen to them. Exactly. Because they don't, I don't have any... This is my com- common refrain is we didn't think it would happen to us because we, we don't think we have anything anyone would want. Yep. That is, seems to be the hardest thing to overcome for folks is if you exist as a business, someone wants something you have. And sometimes you know it, but you're looking at the cost benefit right. and you're saying, I'm going to take the risk. Yep. You know, um, I had a, I, I work a lot with analogies. I have a father who's a retired police officer from New York City, and he will tell me a statistic, you know, uh, cited by the insurance industry that says that a, that a drunk driver will drive drunk 80 times before he's first arrested. And I take that analogy and say, that's where a lot of companies are. They're drunk drivers out there. You know, yeah. they're just <laughs> hoping for the best, you know, until they get caught. Yep. You know, that's a, that's a problem, you know. And uh, quite honestly, when you look at operational costs, like one of the things I tell people is, you know, we've talked about zero trust for a little bit, right? Chase Cunningham told us that. I, in fact, I even heard your podcast yep. when you're talking mm-hmm. with him and such. Uh, you know, he talks a lot about zero trust. Before zero trust, back, you know, when I got my CISSP, we called it least privilege, right? right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. it was, it, you know, it was, it was that type of thing. And uh, the reality is, is that these are evolving things. Least privilege was, uh, or least privilege was a principle. Zero trust is a philosophy. So, you know, SASE, you know, Secure Access Service Edge is a concept. Now, you know, Gartner's moving to SSE, mm-hmm. you know, Secure Services Edge, which is more objectively measurable in their magic quadrants and like. So we're constantly evolving. But the truth is, a lot of people are out there and they say, well, wait a minute. You know, if I have a, like for example, a 24-7 knock sock, and I have a console, just like you have your laptop in front of you, you know, it takes me at least five people to man that console. If that costs me 200000 in salary and benefits, that's a million dollars to man that console. I better get what I'm going to get out of that. You know, so a lot of solutions I, I look at are being rejected, not because they do what they say, no, or they failed to do what they say, but more because they're just too operationally difficult to deal with. Right. And people are looking at the costs and saying, nah, I'll take the risk. And I think, did you, have you found that the reason that the least privilege didn't, hasn't really caught on in most companies because the executives don't want to deal with that much 
burden, burdensome requirements in the sense that, well, I can't access certain things I want to access, so make that one okay. And so you have all of the, you get these risky applications that shouldn't be running on networks running because some executive says, well, I need that for my fantasy football league. Uh, everybody just has trust, right? I yep. remember back in the old days when I was at Cisco dealing with NetRanger and IPS, I remember handing uh, IDS at the time, I remember handing a customer, we, we put a sensor you know, at a customer site, and I remember handing customer report, and you know there was a huge spike on Monday, uh, you know, at ESPN, you know, yep. traffic going to ESPN. <laughs> and, you know, at the time, you know, we're talking about, you know, the late 90s and stuff, you know, we're, we're still dealing with T1 lines and yep. like, you know, this, you know, this, uh, this CIO basically posted this on a bulletin board with a scroll on it that said, this is not why we're upgrading our bandwidth, right? <laughs> you yep. know, and, uh, that type of thing. Yeah, you're right. There there are ultimately, you know, it's funny. I love the term zero trust because ultimately there are trust issues, right? Yep. Because trust, honestly, is the opposite of security. Uh, you know, uh, one analogy that I use to explain to lay people zero trust, I say, think about you getting a package from Amazon, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to get a package delivery from Amazon. It's going to sit on the porch. You're trusting you know, the, the neighbors and your trust and maybe the porch pirates will show up. Maybe they won't mm -hmm. versus, well, what if I have it delivered to an Amazon locker? Because now I have to authenticate into that locker and I have to get then I get my package. So that trust issue has been averted. And that's an example that people can understand. Yeah. And I think you need to implement zero trust into email. Yeah. Don't trust any of your emails. Yeah. It is because I just did my last podcast. I did. I got an email saying that I had re um, I had um, re upped my McAfee subscription for three hundred fifty bucks. Mm -hmm. And if that's not your subscription, call this number and we'll get it removed. Now, first thing I said, well, that's obvious scam because McAfee doesn't cost three hundred fifty bucks. I knew that stuff to stop, and I knew I and it didn't have any personal information. Yep. So I called the guy. I called it and then basically recorded me talking to the guy just to figure out what the scam was. Mm -hmm. All that to be said. But I just, I know, I don't trust about me, but, but how many, especially our elderly, really, if you get down to it, the, the, the most vulnerable population is the elderly. They grew up trusting everybody, or generally trusting everybody. I, I mean, it'd be interesting to hear what your, your father may have a different perspective as a police officer in New York. He probably didn't trust anybody. But, I mean, if they get an email saying, oh, I didn't, I didn't pay 350 bucks for McAfee, I'm going to call this number and get it removed. Yep. So, you know, that... And I think that's where it's going to be hard for zero trust to come into play is because you, you've got to change everyone's mindset to trust nothing. Yeah. Well, it's a big paradigm shift, right? Yeah. We're moving away. And, and quite honestly, the last 18 months of COVID has amplified this, right? right. I mean, the truth is uh, when COVID-19 hit, uh, I say that COVID-19, you know, relative to employees was the equivalent of a prison break. Okay, we fled. We got out of the cubes, <laughs> yep, right. out of the buildings. But the truth is, before that, we were building all these beautiful perimeter fences based on sites. You know, yep. and we had, okay, fine. We had a VPN concentrator that was good for 5% of my mobile work for my, my workforce that was mobile. And suddenly it's relying on 100%. And I'm getting double taxed on bandwidth if I'm not doing split tunneling and stuff. It's, it was 
you know, you're dealing with, it really put it into stark relief that is we have to migrate towards distributed enterprises. We can't just tie, you know, users to locations. We have to tie them to their activity, mm. to their behavior. And like, because I'll tell you, I live in D.C. area myself, you know, which has the worst traffic on the East Coast. I look at my neighbors. I don't see any of my neighbors raising their hands saying, yeah, I'm ready to put that two and a half hour day commute back into my life. Right, right. You know, that's not going to happen. You know, so distributed enterprises are here to stay. Yeah. And we have to think differently. And the idea of brokering connectivity in a zero trust model makes a lot of sense in that respect. Now, how you implement zero trust, that's going that's the hard part, right? I mean, uh, you know, uh, that's going to be a, the challenge, you know, uh, because we're so used to doing things in certain ways. And, you know, the biggest, I find actually the biggest problem or the biggest obstacle in implementing zero trust is that uh, most customers that I run into, most organizations, do not have a good handle on their identity. So your point on zero trust brought me to the question I had was how do you implement it? Because I, I liked your point that it's a philosophy. It's not like you can, I mean... Where's the zero trust store? Yeah. So you, you so you're like, hey, zero trust. I believe in it. I like what Chase Cunningham says. I like yeah. what Ed Lopez says. I want it now. How do I get the, it? The the big problem. This is this is a, an a, an unfortunate truth about cybersecurity. Look, I've also in my my past lives, like when I was at Fortinet. I was responsible uh, to be their IETF researcher. I went to IETF meetings, signed the blue sheets, you know, worked in the working groups. I even co-authored an RFC. But the uh, the thing is, um, there are you know, networking has standards. Cybersecurity or security? Where is the RFC that says this is a firewall? This is uh, you know, there's certainly not going to be something that says. You know, I, I mean, we listened, for example, to like Chase Cunningham and others talk about zero trust. We have a concept of zero trust, but there's no, you know, there, there's no set definition. There's no, it's, it's ultimately becomes subjective. And what ends up happening is many, many companies, particularly in the security realm, they get, they fall in love with a piece of technology and then they say, that's what it is and everything else is right. secondary. And you end up with a lot of different potential solutions. I'm not saying that they're right or they're wrong. I'm just saying that you have to consider the fact that there's a bias in terms of from a company. You know, if, like for example, I was uh, my old company was Fortinet. Fortinet, in its heart of hearts, FortiGates are firewalls. They're very fast firewalls with other services tacked on. And it's like, well, everything now they've expanded out and they do a lot of other things. But in their heart, that's what they do. Just like F5 is a load balancer, you know, uh, th those types of things. So when I evaluate companies, I look at their what their kernel of, of technology is. BitGlass um, is a company that started in the CASB space. And ultimately, when you say, well, what, what does that mean? It means that they are a, you know, their focus is on being a web proxy with a DLP and a, a, a tremendous DLP engine. It, their kernel is an inspection and, and proxy engine. Now, have they been able to leverage that? Have we been able to leverage that to be able to do forward reverse proxy, be able to do full CASB services, including data encryption and the like? 
And, and that was great. I mean, uh, BitClass has been the Gartner Magic Quadrant leader for CASB for three years. But now that Magic Quadrant is going away. Why? Because... Um, because Gartner has now defined SASE, and now they're moving to an SSAE magic quadrant, which is, and just to let people know, SASE, Secure Access Services Edge, was the con- convergence of a concept, mind you, I call it a concept, converging network as a service, basically the SD-WANs, the other transports, with network security as a service. And uh, so now, uh, for example, uh, BitGlass will tell you that networking as a service gets kind of incorporated in the terms uh, SD-WAN. That's part of it. Uh, CASB, which it, with its forward reverse proxy, SWG, with its you know forwarding you know direction you know directing web traffic through a proxy, and zero trust network access, which allows you to broker connectivity without a VPN to your private apps. So we that's what we say. We say CASB, SWG, you know ZTNA and SD WAN. That is our that's our definition. You have to be able to evaluate. What a, where a customer's coming from because quite honestly there's a lot of vendor lock going on out there and yeah. it's not necessarily useful and a lot of customers are looking at this and they're saying look maybe I just need to write Microsoft or Google a bigger check you know <laughs> that, that's, right. maybe that's the answer I don't know you know so it, it's hard to evaluate and you make a very good point how do people adopt it? And I tell people right off the bat, if you don't understand what your identity posture is, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, truth is, how many organizations are trying to move forward, but the reality is their identity posture is this Windows Server 2016 sitting in a room closet somewhere. Right, right, right. <laughs> They're like, hey, I, you know, I need to worry about my security, so I'm just going to buy yeah. this fire, CrowdStrike, I'm going to go buy Falcon from CrowdStrike, yep. I'm going to put it on my endpoint, and I'm going to, I'm good, I'm all my problems are solved. I'm gonna buy the, and then next year, I'm going to buy the new version, which will sit in the closet for three months because no one knows how to configure it, which brings me to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do a quick 180 turn on a question here, but how are you, this is going to be a question I probably ask everybody I talk to yep. here. How is the hiring environment for you, trying to find talented folks to, to do what you guys do to, to help service your customers? Where, 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 what, do you, what do you see from a talent pool perspective or just from a general it's, it's, trying to find people it, to hire? It's brutal right now. Quite honestly, BitGlass does have a number of openings mm-hmm. available right now. Mm-hmm. The reason why I say that is from personal experience. One of the reasons why I came to BitGlass, um, I, I have to admit, in my cybersecurity career, I've sold boxes. Sure. Okay. My my whole thing was perimeter defense, selling boxes back and forth, and I recognized, you know, even with, um, I believe it or not, I even have, um, uh, like, with Fortinet, I ha- even have six patents to my name on expanding, you know, uh, uh, basically a number of things with regard to software defined security as well as uh, being able to expand firewalls to an architectural limit. There are, there are things that I've done, and I'm the guy who realizes that, you know, at the end, we have to move away from this model. We have to move towards a cloud-centric model. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I came to BitGlass was to honestly, you know, uh, be able to, you know, dive into the deep end of the pool in terms of going towards a cloud-centric model, you know, being able to change my own skill set. The problem is there are there is a massive shortage of cybersecurity people. There is uh, and even the cybersecurity people that are out there 
a lot of them have a box-centric empirical knowledge, which doesn't necessarily help. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to be able to to move forward. And you know, one thing uh, we I used to talk about with cybersecurity was there were the security guys, the application guys, the networking guys. You know, and you didn't necessarily talk to everybody. Right. If, were, if I was selling a firewall to a security guy, and then I t- came around and said I want to sell a, an email a security system, I'd be different dealing with a different audience. So a lot of cybersecurity professionals in and of themselves don't necessarily have that exposure to the overall environment. And that becomes a part of it. And like I said, the, uh, I alluded to before, the other problem is with organizations themselves that are looking at this daunting threat landscape that's out there, but saying, I can't afford it. Or right, my people right, right. can't do it, yep. or you know uh, that type of thing. And like I said, they become what my father would say are the drunk drivers out of. It's a great point. Great point. So how do you? So let me ask this question. So how do you? How, do you incorporate education into what Big Glass does as far as educating when your customers come on? Here's here are the here are some safety precautions you need to take as you incorporate into our business model. Is, and the, reason, the only reason I bring that up is because cyber education is a big thing for me. So I'm just curious how other people look at it or think about it. Or education's a huge thing, and it's a huge thing for for uh, for me as well. Uh, I'm a, a big proponent in terms of trying to get out there, uh, get people working in the you know e- even at the classroom level. I can say some personal things about that, but uh, I good example. Um, Way back, way back when, in the 80s, I was in the Navy, Naval Nuclear Power Program. Went to Naval Nuclear Power School, which is kind of like a four-row school, you know, kind of college without the fun, mm-hmm. you know. And the, in the academic part, you know, 2-5 was the passing grade. Now, this is something that I remember and carried with me, you know, from that point on, which is we used to have a saying at Nuclear Power School, which was 2-5 was the ability to recognize the correct answer when told. Okay, that's ultimately what we're dealing with, right? Yeah. We, organizations need to be able to focus on their strengths, on their businesses, but we have to be able to educate them to that two-five level to be able to say, okay, I know what's right, I know what I need to do. I, I'm giving them the information and a plan to be able to move forward on. Um, and you know, quite honestly, in terms of you know, personal on education. Um, you know, it's one of those things where, um, you know, for example, I have a now 29-year-old son. Uh, you know, way back even from high school days, I was teaching him about cybersecurity and the like. And now, you know, he's a tech marketing engineer, one of our competitors. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he's doing great. I have a 15-year-old granddaughter that is starting to learn, you know, about the OSI model. And it's funny because you have to be able to get, you know, uh, I we just did an interesting session. We actually do, like, weekly sessions to kind of talk about things. And we try and keep it friendly and fun and use, and that's why I use analogies a lot. Uh-huh, sure. Um, like, for example, just last week I showed her a map of the 1977 ARPANET. 
That's oh, it. Nice. That was it. That's the internet. Yep. Look at this. Before you know? Al Gore got his hands on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it funny. Yeah, it's funny. You know, uh, you know uh, that that meme is going to live forever. You know about Al Gore inventing the internet, yep, yep, right? Yep. But yeah, I say, look at this. This was a defined thing back then. You know, back when I was playing with Coleco Telstar. You know, and you you were talking about your first computer. My first computer was time sharing on a on a deck PDP 10 using a teletype model 33 you nice, know yeah. it's like come on you know it's 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 old stuff you know um, but the thing is we have to you know we have to be able to teach people a little bit of fundamentals for example my granddaughter didn't even realize there was such a thing as a CLI in Windows it's like yeah look I can open up a command prompt and I can do a ping and I can do a trace route yep and it's like you know and I explained to her you know like uh, for example getting from point A to point B I said you know imagine if I'm sending you a package I said you know the the you know I said you know, I have to bring it to the post office. Post office has to bring it to distribution center. Distribution center has to bring it to the airport. You know, yeah, it flies. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so forth and so on. And then finally, it shows up. You know, where to? You know, and I was just pointing out that's what trace routing is. You know, it's, right. it's you're trying to understand hop by hop how something works. And we were talking about the OSI model. Remember the old seven-letter yeah, OSI sure, yeah. model mm-hmm. and stuff like that? Because you have to have fundamentals. That's mm-hmm. another problem is, and I deal with this a lot in technical sales in, in cybersecurity. Sometimes you go to a customer and you're talking to a counterpart, somebody who's going to be running the thing you're selling. And you can just see sometimes a scared look on their face because... They have empirical knowledge of the solution at hand, and they're afraid if they don't, if they adopt your this new thing, that they're going to find themselves out of a job, you know, or they're right, going to be, yeah, they're going to be sure. challenged. Yep. That's why education has to be a part of this. You have to you, know, you have to encourage people to be out there. And I don't necessarily yeah. I'll, I'll tell them the bit glass viewpoint, and I'll tell them quite honestly, as I am today, some of my personal viewpoints on things. But I encourage people. You have to look look at other things. You know, see what's out there. Try to have an understanding. You know, from different points of view. Because otherwise, how do you make a, an enlightened solution based on your requirements? It's not mm-hmm. about what I, I, yeah, I will sell you a product, but it's ultimately, you know, what I want to do is achieve a win-win where it works for you and you, you know, I keep you as a customer. So, yeah. So I'll get you out on this question. So I'm going to ask you to get out your, looking, your, your magic eight ball and say, okay, in a year, in three years, in five years, where are we with, from cybersecurity perspective? What is... What has changed for the good and what has changed for the bad? Okay. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to continue to see a rise of incidents. I think that there is, um, we, we have failed uh, in many ways to recognize uh, the impact, the rise of personal mobile devices, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, are we going to end up at one point running our organizations like we do, like government skiffs, say, hey, leave your cell phone at the door type thing? Because ultimately, you know, people use their phone. I mean, we all carry our phones. Sure. We're constantly looking at our phones. We yep. have our email on our phones. We have a camera on the phone. We have all of our social media on the phone. It's going to be something where, you know, companies are going to have to 
realize that um, people have a divided attentions and more and more of that attention is moving to that little device that we're buying. And it's going to become a little bit of a problem when you start talking about, as we say, the issue not only just overt data exfiltrations, but just simple innocuous, hey, you know, I I posted all this stuff on social media and now someone can guess my password, you know, Mm -hmm. that type of thing. I see uh, the rise of not only multi-factor authentication, but quite honestly, uh, to the point where we're going to start moving away from patents, you know, moving towards passwordless systems. That's going to be a, a big change. Um, and I'm hoping, and this is a hope, that we're going to see, quite honestly, the, and it's, it's hard to say this, but I think that the insurance industry is going to play a role in our lives. In other words, we're go- as breaches start moving forward, and moving forward, the same way like way back a century ago, right? We started having car accidents and suddenly people needed car insurance. The same thing's going to happen with cyber. We are all going to have to, all organizations going to have to handle, carry cyber insurance. Yeah. And those cyber insurance organizations are going to be dictating practices. Okay. And that's really, we've seen parts of this, right? Mm-hmm. With PCI DSS is a great example of this, where the you know, credit card industry said, hey, in order to, for us to mitigate the cost of, risk, uh, the cost of fraud and other risks, we are going to demand that our, you know, our users, you know, handle these practices. We're going to see more and more of that, and we're going to see much more of a tie towards cybersecurity, you know, or cyber insurance becoming a bigger part of our organization's lives. And there, well, the owner of a black Jeep with the license plate tags apply for come to the registration desk. Well, like I said, that uh, <laughs> we're going to see um, cyber insurance playing more and more of a role in dictating how organizations operate in the future. So it's it's going to happen. I also see trends like, for example, uh, you know, Palo Alto suddenly moving into the commercial space. <laughs> That's yeah. an interesting, you know, because they're also that, buying up companies left and right. Of course, of course, they they will gladly Frankenstein solutions together. But <laughs> the reality is, and that's that's not fair. They're actually a, great, a number of great people at Palo Alto. I, I have a lot of friends over there. But the uh, thing is, uh, I reckon they recognize that the distributed enterprise, as I said, is here to stay, yeah. and they recognize that that means that. Home devices are going to have split functions. They're going to be dealing with, you know, the kids getting out to, you know, stream or do what they're going to do. But they're also going to be workspaces where people are doing real work. And, you know, that makes sense to me. Well, Ed, I greatly appreciate you taking the time out of your busy conference schedule to sit down with me. And maybe we can speak again at another time and we'll, we'll uh, I'll have a more organized set of questioning we can do and we'll, oh, no we'll do worries. it again. A pleasure. Pleasure Thank you, talking Ed. to you. Take Thanks. care. So I'm joined now with Darren House, the Chief Cyber Advisor for Rocketech. And fortunately, Darren spells his name the right way, two R's E-N, which we, we like to see. The only way. The only, exactly. Did you ever get called, like, Daryl? How often do you get called Daryl? I guess you get that all the time. Uh, not Daryl, uh, uh, Darwood. 
Really? Yeah, I think it was because, or what was it, from Bewitched. Oh, was yes, Durwood, 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 yes, absolutely, yes. So, so Darren, thanks for stopping by. So, Rocket Tech, let's talk a little bit about what they do, um, who you're here talking to at the comp- at the summit, and give us a little bit about what Rocket Tech is. Sure, thank you. So, uh, Rocket Tech is a company we focus on the distribution reseller model, and our goal is to try and bring emerging technology companies into the government space. Uh, government is a different space for them, so these uh, Series A seed funding companies, they're focused on product development, but they're not really... Uh, they don't know how to access those types of uh, markets, so we help bring them along from the business perspective and the market maturity perspective, the technology, and then we work with them to do cross-pollination between different partners to try and bring solutions to that market as well using multiple uh, multiple emerging technology company partners. Okay, so is it, um, so uh, I'm going to custom this out because my question's coming in wrong. So, so <laughs> as the chief cyber architect, is it that? As the chief sure. cyber architect, what do you what? So, what is your role within in Rocket Tech? And are you? What are your cyber? Do you have cybersecurity solutions? Yes. Is it hardware, software based? What's the? Sure. Yeah. What's that? So, my role is we have the preemptive cyber portfolio. My role is to manage that portfolio, uh, advise our our partners on that portfolio, bring new uh, emerging technologies into that portfolio, and then work with uh, government customers to get those uh, technologies into the government to solve problems like everybody's talking about the EO or TIC three O or things like that, and so. Our partners can take care of you know the different requirements from the EO or these other things, and here's how we can give you examples and, and that kind of thing. That's how we differentiate. So, what are the biggest cyber threats or risks that your partners or your customers are dealing with? What are you trying to stop from happening to them? I guess. You know, I think from the big picture, our goal is a couple things. One, we want to reduce the uncertainty and risk management. If at a fundamental level, I think that's the biggest thing. There's a lot of other smaller things that people are trying to do, but from that larger perspective, if you strategize on reducing that uncertainty a longer term, you're going to be much better, much better off. So that's really what we're doing. The portfolio, uh, we have our, our tagline, our goal, we aspire to make adversaries irrelevant. Mm. Part of that is because we can help reduce the uncertainty, the TTPs, the tactics, techniques, and procedures yep. that adversaries use. We have technologies that directly address those things to make it such that credential theft becomes irrelevant to a company because they use UV keys, for example, oh, okay. to be able yeah. to do a multi-factor security keys. And now all of a sudden, they can steal your credentials, but they still can't do anything without the t- yep. test of user presence and the key. So, like do you that. find so when you when you you come out, your customers come on, how many of them are already doing that, or how many of them do you have to train to say, look, if you want to be safe, this is the way you're going to have to go. I know that your CEO is not going to like having to carry around this little UB key and put it in and tap it and do all that kind of stuff, but if you want to save your data, that's how you do. There's a lot of training. Right. Some <laughs> yeah. of them know, but there's a lot of training. And the thing, you know, on the YubiKey example, it becomes significantly easier, the deployment model, the replacement model, all that stuff, than traditional uh, ways to do multi-factor or PIV cards, CAT cards, things like that. So it ends up being a lot easier and cost-effective to get that same amount of security. What's your what's your company's policy on passwords? Do you want them to be longer, passphrases, use different symbols? Where do you stand on passwords? We want them to be gone. <laughs> that's a good one. Right. Okay, that's good. So how do you so how do you get there with that? With UbiKeys, with the YubiKeys right? So yeah. using you, sorry using YubiKeys, things like we have another partner called SecureAuth, so you can integrate YubiKeys with SecureAuth to SecureAuth to be able to do uh, how you authenticate and be able to identify deviations in behavior for authentication, right? So adaptive authentication capabilities. So there's a lot of different capabilities you can use, but it's pr- primarily going to be through YubiKeys. You don't have to use passwords. You can use the tokens, pass the tokens in, and then you're good to go. And is okay. So this is going to be a naive question on my pers- my part, but it, what if someone steals my YubiKey? So they can steal your YubiKey, but they don't have your uh, your code, 
right? So you right. have to do an initial code when you do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You log gotcha. in the machine. Yeah, yeah. You have to so because that because the reason I ask that because Microsoft's new passwordless methodology. So I've, I'm using it. Okay. But I'm I'm somewhat skeptical in the sense that have you tried it the way uh, that they're doing it? Their their authenticator app. Yeah. Yeah. So I've used the authenticator app, but it, it seems like when I when something when I want to log into something, it says hit approve on the authenticator app. And my authenticator app pops up and says, do you approve this? Okay. I'm fairly cyber security savvy, I would like to think, but my family members are not. Right. So I can see family members who would do this. And, hey, go do this, whatever. They do it. They get the pop and they go, I must be logging in somewhere. And they click approve. So how does, is, is am I missing a step there that Microsoft is using for that passwordless system? Or is that just a kind of a flaw vulnerability that they probably need to address at some point? So because I don't know exactly how they're doing that, I'd yeah. prefer not to comment. Right? Fair enough, fair enough, fair so, enough. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I, yeah, I think the YubiKey is the better route to go, clearly, right. because there's still that thing you have and thing you know. And thing you have to touch. Thing you have to, right, and thing you have to, to touch, presence. exactly. It's a little different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so even if you have malware on your on your machine, they can't use the key because they can't get access to the key that's on the YubiKey itself, and they can't do anything unless you test your user presence for that key for that particular website. So it could be per website you have different uh, authentication without passwords. So, you know, the, one of the big terms in cybersecurity is zero trust now, yep. obviously. So how does how does the YubiKey fit into that zero trust framework? Or does it? Well, it does because, yeah. partly because you get rid of the passwords you get, you have to send it to a specific user, you know, the logistics process of deploying out YubiKeys. To identify who their user is, it gets sent out. There's a, an access code that's sent in different ways so they can val validate who they are, things like that. So there's processes in place to make sure that they are who they are when they get to it. And then when they register that key, into the environment, and then once that key is registered, then it's that mix of uh, the device that they're on and the key, and, and that, that gives you that zero trust. Cool. So how do people find Rocket Tech? Uh, www.rockettech.com. Primarily, you can come to our uh, booth, 901, uh, the big Rocket Tech sign. Yeah, there it is. Right yeah. Are you at a, what other conferences do you guys go to? So beyond when someone's listening to this, let's say, next week, right. and this conference is over, where's your next, where are you guys going to be next? Uh, so we actually are uh, newer to the conferences. This is our first conference. This is kind of oh, our kickoff okay. conference, right? So we're trying to figure out exactly what we're going to be doing from that conference perspective. Uh, so I don't have a good answer for you, but maybe next time I'll, uh, I'll see you around and I'll tell you. So how's the, how's the attendance here? I haven't really walked around much. Is it attendance seem to be good? or? That's pretty good. We have uh, definitely some good foot, tra foot traffic and good conversations. You know, people with some interesting problems to try and solve. A lot of them with YubiKeys, right? They're trying yes. to figure out, okay. Are you giving YubiKeys away? We have some, yeah. Oh. Uh, we, also, uh, <laughs> we also have, uh, so we have a Wacka Hacker game. You okay. know, the Whack-A-Mole game. Yeah, yeah. We have adversary names. If you get 500 points or more, you get a free prize. Uh, and we also have a, a breakout lockbox. So we have some uh, clues, some cybersecurity-based clues. And if you can figure out those clues and open the box, there's a $200 gift card. That's it. So that... That brought me to another question. So when you when you bring in your new clients and you're trying to train them up on all these security, what's the biggest hurdle you have to overcome that the companies just are stuck in whatever their their long term methodologies that you're trying to say don't we're not going to do this anymore whether you like it or not. You know, that's a hard question. The reason is because there's so many different areas yeah. that we're talking about, right? So our focus, you know, you have adversaries that they traverse networks to get using stolen credentials, using identities to get to data. That's a, that's a common model, right? So are you talking about threat intelligence? Are you talking about breach and attack simulation? Are you talking about identity, identity management, privilege access? Are you talking about data classification, encryption, discovery? There's yeah. a whole lot of things. Sure, right? sure, so sure. it's really the giving that bigger context and then trying to dive deep on where their issues are and trying to figure it out. For us, the big thing is um, 
trying to make the cyber economic cost of the attacker higher, right? It's like the uh, pyramid of pain. Right. Up higher on the TTPs, the, the higher you can make the pain for the attacker because you put those uh, mitigations in place, the responsive controls, detective controls, the better off you are. And so that's a strategy you need to take, but it needs to be a threat-informed strategy. What's the threat in your environment? What's your threat model? And having it make sense with that strategy. So that's really get that thinking, that mindset right, mm -hmm. and then things will typically follow. Right. So. So I used to I was used to be an FBI agent. Used to do a lot of presentations to companies about cyber threats and stuff. They always they always like it's never going to happen to me. Blah blah. So so I forgot my question. I had a good question. Oh, so, so one of the things we would always say: Look, if you had strong passwords and use multi-factor authentication, you're going to resolve ninety plus percent of your problems. You find that to be correct? Yes, and then patch. And pa yes, and patch. Yeah, I don't say that enough, but that's <laughs> certainly the, I have a larger framework of things, and patching is one of the things you have to do. I mean, I've, how many how many vulnerable iPhones do you think are currently out there right now with that 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 uh, that one that came out last week, the, the forced entry? Yeah, I updated about thirty seconds after I saw it. So did I, and I told my wife, "Hey, you're gonna have a red button on your general hit. I know. Hit do that. I, I texted my family <laughs> as well. Everybody in the family, they're all taken care of. Yeah, yep. yeah. All right, well, Darren, thanks so much for coming in. Yeah. Check, and if you're at a conference, look for Rocket Tech. If not, find them at rockettech.com. Hey, Darren, it was great to meet you. You too, thanks. <laughs> so that is going to do it for episode 52 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I want to thank Darren House and Edward Lopez for stopping by my booth at the National Cyber Summit to have a little chat. We'll be doing a few more of these as the weeks go on. I'm going to have a, 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 episode 53 is going to drop early this week. Um, that's going to be with Dr. Chase Cunningham to talk about his new book, Great Gabriel. So look for that coming out in the next couple of days. As always, I appreciate everyone for listening, for spreading the word about the podcast. Don't forget my other podcast, uh, the Get Cyber Smart Podcast. If you have family members or friends who need more help with their cybersecurity education, feel free to take a look at that. Both podcasts available and on all your fine podcast outlets. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, knowledge is protection. Understand the threats targeting you. Assess your risk. Proceed wisely. We'll talk to you soon.